I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations. Now, uh, as you're turning there, I'll give you a minute to find it because if your Bible is bookmarked to the 12, the series that we're currently in, the Minor Prophets, you will notice that Lamentations is not among them. It is technically not a part of, well, not just technically, it's never been considered a part of the 12 of the Minor Prophets. So, why are we in this book? Well, I'll answer that in a minute, but as you're turning to Lamentations chapter 5, which is where I will be reading from, Lamentations 5. I just want to give you a couple quick notes on the overall thrust of Lamentations and the structure of Lamentations. If you just glance quickly through Lamentations, you'll notice that chapters 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 are all 22 verses. That's because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each one of them, 1, 2, and 4, is an acrostic poem, so that each verse starts with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, verse, chapter 3 is 66 verses. That's because it also is an acrostic poem, but each line there, so it's in triplets, each line, so three lines with Aleph, and then three lines with Bade, and then three lines with Gimel, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's expanded. And the whole thing is written. You'll notice all those weird indents in your English Bible just means that this is poetry. It's written in poetry as a way to try to express the anguish, the emotion of the reality that God's people are experiencing. Simple prose will not do. There is anguish that needs to be expressed, emotion that needs to be expressed, images that need to be expressed, and only poetry, only song will do. There's a unique meter that's used in Lamentations. It's kind of like a 3-2 like a kind of rhythm, so bump, 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 bump. Bum, 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 bum. To, to, to essentially give the image as you read it in, in Hebrew, it gives the image almost of someone limping, of someone dragging along, of someone who's injured trying to walk, trying to keep going. So even the, the very structure, the form of the text gives shape to the message itself of the text. The, the text was written, tradition says, by Jeremiah. The text doesn't say it's written by Jeremiah, but tradition says it's written by Jeremiah, and we understand it to have been written Sometime around 587 B.C., so 587 years, give or take, before the coming of Christ. This is on the third and final siege of Jerusalem, where Nebuchadnezzar II is destroying the city for the last time and taking the last of the captives. This is the lowest of the low that the people in Jerusalem have come to so far. So the book of Lamentations reflects on what it's like to live life in a city that is being destroyed, surrounded by people who are suffering and dying. This is a book that reflects on suffering all in communion with God. There's relationship with God, there's cries, cries out to God, there's prayers to God, songs to God, all in the midst of suffering. And that's what we have in Lamentations. I'm going to read for us chapter 5, so the conclusion of Lamentations beginning in verse 1, Lamentations 5 and verse 1. Hear now what Holy Scripture says. Remember, O Yahweh, O Lord, Yahweh, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. 
we're given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, And you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, why would we be in Lamentations? It's not exactly thematic in terms of the calendar. You're coming to the end of Summer, you know, there's lots of happy memories, hopefully, from summer. It should be a happy kind of moment. Why would we be in Lamentations? It's not one of the 12. Well, there are lots of heady kind of answers I could give you about themes and intercanonical connections and all those kinds of things to try to make it seem more impressive than the reality. The, the real reason is simply this. What we've seen so much through the 12 is that sin is Gross. God's people have been unfaithful. Like at the beginning of the summer, James reminded us from Hosea that God's people have gone astray. They've committed spiritual adultery. And this has brought the judgment of God on them. We've heard these pronouncements of judgment, of the wrath of God. We've seen the punishment that God brings on his people and on the nations. And we've been reminded again and again that hope for God's people lies on the other side of rest or on the other side of judgment. On the other side of judgment, there's restoration, there's renewal, there's resurrection. We've seen this in big theological categories. In objective senses, the words of the prophets have given us a mountaintop view down on all that God is doing. They're helping to interpret providence to explain history. It's a 30,000-foot view. These are good and helpful and necessary categories. That's why God gave us the 12. 
But at the same time, while these theological truths are being laid out for God's people in the 12, the reality is that not at the 30,000 foot level, but on the ground level, inside the walls of Jerusalem, as the city is falling and the people are dying, God is giving words to his people there too. My, my concern for us, why I want to take a step out of the 12 and reflect on Lamentations, which happens at the same time as a number of the minor prophets, is that we would not be a people who simply understand theological categories of evil and wrath and suffering, but that we know how to actually engage with God and commune with God and fight to worship God even in the midst of suffering. That we would understand the, the language, the, the feeling, the emotion, the relational dynamics of communing with God in the midst of our suffering. Now that we've been equipped with theological categories, we need permission and we need language to express our worship and our praise to God, our pleas to God, our cries to God in the midst of suffering. And if we study lamentations correctly, it will give us both language and latitude both pattern and permission to worship God in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of a world that's full of brokenness. But to get there, we need to hear the testimony, the eyewitness inside the walls, real-time suffering testimony of the people who are enduring the wrath of God. They're witnessing the pouring out of the wrath of God for sin what is the testimony that they bear? The, the first truth that's declared in Lamentations is this, is sin results in a devastating reversal. All is, is not going to be what it now appears to be. Sin will bring a devastating reversal. The, the, the image that comes to mind when I think about this is the, the classic image of someone wandering in a desert and they think they know the right way to go, but all of a sudden they look off in the distance and they see water. And so they start heading off in a new direction to go get the water only to discover that it's a mirage. I wasn't sure if that is something that just happens in movies so I had, to, I had to look it up. Apparently it has something to do with two different stratas of heat and then the light bends through it and it creates this illusion. But in any case, what happens is you're wandering and you look and you think you see water that'll save you and so you walk towards it. But in reality, the more the person walks towards what they think is real, it actually only leads them further and further into the wilderness where they will die. This is the state of affairs with those who pursue sin and find a greatness in worldly categories. The historical setting of Lamentations. I want to read to you from Second Chronicles here for a moment. What this is going to do is it's going to set the stage. So again, just historical backdrop data to understand what's happening in Lamentations so you understand who some of the players and key people are. Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 11, says this, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Now understand, Zedekiah was not the right king, the true king. What had happened was he, the, the king before him had been deposed by Nebuchadnezzar. And Zedekiah was put in kind of as a pawn to rule on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar in the midst of God's people. So Zedekiah is put on the throne by the enemies of God's people. But even then, he continues to do evil. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God. 
He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Down to verse 14. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So the 12, the, the prophets that we've been studying have come and they've brought words of warning, pleading, calling on God's people to repent. But we know what happens next in the story. They mock the prophets. They belittle them. They don't listen to them. They don't obey the word of God. And as a result, they are punished. They receive the wrath of God. Zedekiah thought he'd be wise in his own eyes. He was installed by Nebuchadnezzar, but then rather than hearing the word of Jeremiah and the other prophets that were sent to him, he sent word to the king of Egypt And tried to establish a new alliance, a new covenant with them in hopes that humans would deliver them. He looked to power, he looked to wealth, he looked to military strength. And the Lord brought even greater destruction. The the, the picture from 2 Chronicles, the reason why I read it is simply this. The city, even now, even now, after it's been besieged and the leaders have been taken away, there's just been new big shots that have risen in their place. People who think they can rebel against God. They're still rich. They're still powerful. They're still popular. There's still people that appear like they have it all together and think much of themselves. They're wise in their own eyes. But the reversal, the devastating reversal is coming for them. Note the reversals in in chapter 1. Look at how it begins. Chapter 1 and verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Was full of people. Was inhabited. Was great. Now it's lonely. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She was great. Now she's a widow. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Verse 2, she weaves bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Where she used to spend her nights with her lovers, enjoying the pleasures of love, there's a devastating reversal. She's trying to cry herself to sleep, and she's alone with no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. She thought they were her friends. Instead, they become her enemies. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. She dressed herself up. The, the, the image of the text is she, she dressed herself up to try to woo all the nations, to, to try to be sexy and appeal to them on their language, on their level, but instead she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Verse 19 of chapter 1, I called to my lover's the other nations, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Jerusalem, a city full of big shots, thought they were the toast of the world. They're so alone. Look at, look at, look at verse 21. They heard my groaning 
yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They're glad. They're glad that you've done it. The reversals, the the peeling back of all that was impressive, the peeling back of layer upon layer of deception of what looked great continues. Chapter 4 and verse 5 says this, Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. So the rich of the world will be impoverished. The powerful are made powerless. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Her princes, Jerusalem's princes, were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. So the message goes something like this. If you, are, if you are wise in your sin, you're wise in the ways of the world, you're crafty, you know how to game the system, you can get ahead in life. And we can see that all around us, right? If you look at the rich, at the powerful, if you look at the influencers, the people with all the followers, if you look at the people who look like they have all that this world has to offer, more often than not, their lives are gong shows of sin. They figured out how to work sin in the life of this world and the ways this world works to their own advantage. So it looks like they just get ease and pleasure and riches. It looks like they're getting ahead. They're safe from harm. They have a good reputation. It looks like they have lots of friends and allies. But there's a day when it will all come crashing down. When the mirage will be seen for what it is, there is not a single soul who has a privileged place in the courtroom of God. There's not a single person with friends in position of power who can help them out on judgment day. Each of us will stand before the throne of God Are you ready for that? Because the things that matter in the world won't matter in that moment. Your intelligence will not help you. No matter how much you've been able to lie and deceive people, it will not help you. No matter who your friends are, they cannot help you. No matter how much money or power or influence, you will be exposed for what you are. In the language of the prophets, your skirts will be lifted up over your head and you will be exposed and examined and judged for what you really are. And those in this world who posture, make pretense of greatness, will be brought low. It keeps getting worse. The testimony of those who suffer, they testify that not only is there this great reversal, but the great reversal is, in fact, they are clear, is the result of wrath. Wrath, secondly, which brings gut 
gut-wrenching terrors. This is wrath. The wrath of God brings gut-wrenching terrors. See, this siege, as we've talked about, it took place, you can read the timeline elsewhere in Scripture, it took place from the ninth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign to the eleventh year. So this siege of the city... In other words, when the army surrounded the city so that everyone was trapped inside the city, inside the walls of the city, was almost two years. Now, this is really important because if you want water or food or crops, if you want your cattle or your livestock to be able to go out into feed and to go out into pasture, you need to go outside the city. But if you go outside the city, the army kills you. If you stay inside the city, you have no food. Do you see the dilemma? For two years. It brings incredible torment and suffering that's described here in this book. Eventually, there would be a breach made in the wall, and Zedekiah, the little rat of a king that he was, tried to escape for himself with some of his warriors, but they were caught. And what the Babylonian army did was they took Zedekiah's children and they slaughtered all of his children right in front of him. And then cut out his eyes. So the last thing he ever saw was his children dying. And then they took him away to Babylon where he died. This is a terrible moment in the history of God's people. You've already heard the refrain. There was no one to comfort. There was no one to comfort. She's all alone. There's torment in the aloneness, but in the judgment of God, you're not just alone. You're also pursued, being chased. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Listen to the way the prophet words this. He writes this. He has, God has, Yahweh has, walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. You ever have nightmares like this? You're trying to get away and you just can't get away. This was the experience, the testimony of these people. Look what God has become to them. Verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. God, Yahweh, turned aside my steps. He tore me to pieces. He made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. As I'm running away, I'm getting shot with his arrows. I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. The pursuit continues. Chapter 4 and verse 18. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. They're faster in the skies. They're faster in the mountains. They're faster on the flatland. You cannot get away. The picture is just utter terror. It's aloneness. It's the terror of pursuit. And it is, as I said, gut-wrenching. And I mean that as literally as possible. Look at the language that the prophet uses. Chapter 2 and verse 11. 
My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When I say gut-wrenching, I mean he's vomiting. He sees the suffering and he cannot keep anything in his stomach because the wickedness, the evil, the sorrow, the destruction is so bad. Chapter 2 and verse 20, he describes it in depth. Look, O Yahweh, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Should women eat the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? These should be the two safest places in the world, the arms of a mother in the temple of the Lord. But God's people have become prey. This too, down to the very details, is the fulfillment of prophecy. We've seen this again and again in the 12, right? No matter how many times God, God's people prove themselves unfaithful, we see the reality is that God remains faithful. He will fulfill his word. So approximately 813 years before this moment, Moses prophesied this. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 52. This is what Moses said over 800 years before Jerusalem was besieged. They shall, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which Yahweh your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom Yahweh your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he's eating because he has nothing left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. He goes on and describes more. The, the picture is simply this. The, t the terror and the desperation of God's people imprisoned in the walls. There's irony, right? The walls in which they've trusted have become the very prison that keep them trapped. And in the desperation, trying to save themselves, they turn on one another, even eating their own children. The fact that Yahweh said all this and then fulfilled it leads to the undeniable conclusion that not only are they alone, not only are they pursued, not only is it gut-wrenching, not only is it terrible, but all of it comes from the hand of Yahweh himself. It comes from him. And here's the thing. They can acknowledge he's right to do it because they've seen their sin Look at chapter 1 and verse 18. Yahweh's in the right. For I've rebelled against his word. 
They're suffering the wrath of God, but even in the moment of their suffering, they can acknowledge this is what I deserve. Yahweh's in the right, not me. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Look, O Yahweh, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it's like death. Here's the desperation of the moment. I'm, I'm enduring it. It's coming. It's coming on me, and I see that I deserve it. How am I supposed to fight a charge that I know I'm guilty of. And this too adds to the terror and the torment of the moment of God's people being judged. It's God himself who's doing it and he is doing it in his anger, in his wrath, and in his fury. Chapter 2 and verse 1 How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He, Yahweh, has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The minor prophets, the twelve, we've been reading about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and it has come. The awaited day of judgment has come. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger. This is not a dispassionate God. It's not an unmoved mover. This is a God who is passionate. He is moved in his fury and his fierce anger. He cuts them down. He is withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He is burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand, which is supposed to be a refuge, supposed to be a source of strength, supposed to be a place of protection with his right hand, no longer delivering them. Now his right hand, which delivered them in in Exodus, has been set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. This is gut-wrenching terror from the wrath of God. It's worth stepping back and, and, and reflecting. If God dealt thus, with people who had a partial Old Testament that they could hear read when they went to temple. What's the judgment in store for us who've got the whole thing? We we carry it in our pocket on an app. We can hear millions of podcasts and sermons and teaching. We can go to church Sunday by Sunday and hear the word of God. We who have received the precious truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What is the judgment in store for us who reject this revelation? Some of you have memorized scripture from your childhood. But it's never dropped from the head to the heart. The judgment is greater. Some of you come to church on Sundays to ease your conscience. And you go online all through the week to relieve your lusts. Some of you sing, crown them with many crowns, but you don't let them anywhere near the throne of your life to obey what he says. What is the judgment in store for 
us. Listen to the voice of lament. Witnessing the outpouring of the wrath of God. Flee. Flee from the wrath to come. It is isolation and terror. It is pursuit without refuge. It is certain death and destruction. And it's knowing that you're guilty and exposed and there is nothing you can do. Where's the escape? Where are we to go? What are we to do? Here's one of the most terrifying realities of all of this. If it's Yahweh, if it's God who's turned against us, who can deliver us from God? Who can save us from the wrath of God? Chapter 2 and verse 13, this is the question that's on Jeremiah. If it's Jeremiah who wrote it, this is the question that's on his heart. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? If God's hand is turned against you, who can be for you? The testimony of Lamentations, though, is that there is hope. To return to God. Here's a third thing, this testimony, the testimony of the sufferer. He bears this out for us. He says this, to return to God is our only hope. Who can save from God? Only God. Look at the tension as as he wrestles this through in chapter 3. I'm going to read several of these verses. Look there with me. Chapter 3 and verse 16. He reiterates the truth that it's God who's judging. Chapter 3, verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from Yahweh. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Remember the bitterness of the suffering. My soul continues, continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, but this... I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Not in my walls, not in my strategic military alliances, not in my politics. I will hope in him. Yahweh is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of man. Here's the reality. The prophet writing these words knows, he knows there's an, there's an imbalance in the disposition of God's heart. He remembers Exodus 34 when God declares his name before Moses. And he said, a God gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing his steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands. He will not clear the guilty, no, by no means, but he will keep 
steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin. He knows the heart of God who longs to be merciful. I love the way that NIV words Isaiah 30 verse 18. It says this, Yet Yahweh longs, he longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. He longs to be gracious, so he's going to get up and he's going to show you compassion. This is his heart. Our God longs to be gracious so much that he did get up. To show you compassion. And in a profound reversal, God became man. The king became a servant. Humbling himself in obedience and service, even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So that he could satisfy the wrath of God in the place of sinners. So that all the terror, all the destruction, all the torment, all the wrath of God could be fully taken by him. He took our wrath. So from the heart of God, the wrath has been poured out for his people. There is no wrath that remains. All that remains in the heart of God towards you who have trusted in Christ is his compassion, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his mercies, which will never cease. One of the most compellingly beautiful purposes of Lamentations is to describe for us in vivid detail not simply what they endured as the city was destroyed, but to lay out clearly for us what Christ would take in our place when he suffered and died on the cross. From the rejection the isolation, the betrayal, the mocking, the wounding, the inescapability, the justice, the full consciousness of bearing the wrath of God, everything that these people endured prophetically lays out for us what Christ himself will endure in our place if we trust in him. The hope of Lamentations is that the horrors of Lamentations have already been fulfilled. They were poured out on Jesus who bore our affliction, the crushing, the opposition, the suffering. He took it all. So there's nothing left of it for us who are hidden in him. If you return to him, there is hope because our God remains compassionate and full of steadfast love and mercy, forever faithful. So trust in Jesus. This leaves us in an interesting place 
Because if we say that what the people endured in this day that's written in the book of Lamentations is an experience that Christians will never have to endure because the wrath of God that they endured has been fully poured out, fully removed. None of it remains for us. So their experience is fundamentally different than anything we will experience. Does that mean that the book of Lamentations no longer applies? That now we get to live in our Christian happily ever after and everything will all be sweet candy and roses. Here's the last testimony of Lamentations. is simply this. This is our reality right now. To lament is still good. It's worth noting in the structure of Lamentations, we, we talked about it earlier, the, the hope, the glimmer of hope comes in chapter 3. But then you still have chapter 4 and chapter 5, which continue the lament. It's worth seeing that there's no, there's no simple answer. There's no one-size-fits-all. Simply take this truth pill and all will be healed. Even the way the fifth lament ends is telling. Look at the end of the book, verse 19. But you, O Yahweh, you reign forever. I can acknowledge that. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly reject us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. There's a, there's a note of unresolvedness to the book of Lamentations which exists to tell us that we still live in this reality that though God reigns forever, yet brokenness still exists on earth. We will never know the wrath of God that the people of Lamentations did but we do continue to live in a world where brokenness happens. Lamentations, as we said, it gives us a pattern and it gives us permission. It gives us latitude and it gives us language to wrestle with God in prayer and worship when life sucks. I said we need to worship Lament is an act of worship because it requires tremendous faith. Do you know how easy it would have been for the author of Lamentations to just say, well, I'm giving up on you, God. I'm going to deconstruct everything because you didn't make everything work out for me. I'm not rich and famous. I didn't get the platform as a prophet that I wanted. So I'm turning away. I'm apostatizing. I'm finding a new God. But he doesn't do that. He wrestles with the God he knows is true. Instead, faith says, this is terrible. God, this sucks. Let me tell you what it's like down here. I'm not telling you because I'm a whiner. I'm telling you because I believe that you're good and that your promises are true and you're merciful and compassionate. But right now, I don't see that. This world is full of sin and brokenness and evil and suffering. This on earth does not look like it is in heaven. And because you're wise and because you're good, I want to see it. What I see in this world around me right now, God, is people saying you're not wise, you're not good, you're not powerful. They're mocking you, they're turning against you, they're walking away, they're denying the truth. I want to see you set things right. So how long? I know you won't leave it this way. I know you won't. You're on your throne. I know you won't leave it. So how long? 
Do you know how badly we need to be able to say this as Christians these days? No matter how many times you say it, it's never less true. This COVID world we're living in is not the way the world is supposed to function. Whatever you think of the disease or policies or whatever, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Elections are not supposed to happen where there's no good candidates. This is not the way the world's supposed to run. Churches are divided across our country over politics. That is not right. Scandals and apostasies continue to plague our evangelical celebrity circles. Local church members on a local level feel invisible, unknown, and forgotten. Medical professionals have watched so many people die in their care this past year. Some of you have suffered miscarriages. You've lost loved ones. You've grieved and you haven't even been able to have funerals for them. Some of you have had friends move in the midst of all of this and you feel the loss. Every single one of us is on edge and anxious and fearful and worried for what's next. We've never felt less comfortable in our own skin and we need words to be able to cry out to God and say, God, I believe you're good and I believe this isn't, so how long? How long? Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, in our worship, in our prayers, in our private devotions, we need to be able to go to God and tell him what's wrong. And tell him what we know is true about him. And leave it to him to reconcile those two truths. You've heard the testimony of these sufferers. The wrath of God comes. It brings gut-wrenching, revealing, and reversal of fortunes and terrors. All will be exposed and dealt with. The only way to be delivered from this wrath is to return to him, put your trust in him. Part of that trusting in a fallen world is learning to lament, to cry out and to say, come, come, Lord Jesus. May God give us words and a voice. Let's pray.